To live is Christ, to die is gain. These six words are taken from uh, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi in chapter 1, verse 21. And when you think about them, they are a remarkable six words. They, they are remarkable because those six words, Paul sums up life and death. In those six words, he explains deeply his understanding of life and his understanding of death. Throughout time, since man has been able to form thoughts and, and put them in words, volumes and volumes and volumes of thoughts and words have been dedicated to understanding the purpose of the meaning of life and the expectation of the next life. Philosophers have invested centuries um, in contemplation of understanding the meaning of life and the expectation of the afterlife. And Paul, in six words, in six words expresses the Christian's view of both life and death. Now for many, I think, a, a conversation um, about philosophers and, and, and philosophies that they espouse um, can see that as, um, as kind of a, a mind-numbing, almost seemingly useless conversation. Um, I, I certainly understand that perspective. Um, I can remember my junior year at Bible College in, in Dr. Gordon Anderson's philosophy class. Um, uh, a, a class I passed, by the way, because um, thanks to my wife's uh, prodigious note-taking, um, generally I'd go to the class, I'd kind of glaze over, she'd take notes, and then we'd, we'd study them later. Um, but I remember thinking um, how stupid it was uh, to spend hours and hours discussing and, and studying the, the theoretical ideas about life um, from some guys in the distant past. I kind of assumed uh, everybody has opinions about life, right? And, 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 what, and what life means and what the afterlife is. And, and clearly a lot of them are, are going to be wrong. In fact, I would, I would venture to guess that most of them are going to be wrong. And, and so I thought, why waste my time thinking about them? Why waste my time uh, uh, studying them? Now, I used to think that. But after decades of living and observing, I've come to the realization that everyone adopts, um, whether they know it or not, everyone adopts a philosophy of life that dictates most of what they do. And quite often, we don't even realize we are adopting a philosophy. But whether you, you adopt the hedonism of Aristippus or, and, and Marquise de Sade, believing that that pleasure is the most important pursuit of mankind and the only thing that is, that is good for the individual, or the stoicism of Zeno and Seneca, the belief that, that virtue is the only good and, and happiness is only found in accepting uh, the moment and, and not being controlled by desire and pleasure, or the revelation of Protagus and Kuhn, the relativism, that believes that all views are relative to differences in, in perception and consideration, that there, that there is no universal, objective truth. Rather, each point of view has its own truth. 
as I list these off and as I, I describe these, I think every one of us can see that lived out in the lives of the people around us. Some are controlled by relativism. Some, some hold to stoicism. Some are hedonistic in their view of life. Whether they know it or not, some philosophy drives what they are. Or maybe we've adopted unwittingly dozens of different philosophies of life. And, and you can see it in the lives that we choose. Dozens kind of amalgamated into what we think and how, how we believe we should live. The reality is the adoption of those philosophies will impact the life you live. The expectations you have for this life. The expectations you have for the afterlife. Paul says... To live is Christ, to die is gain. An examination of that succinct understanding of life and the afterlife is important, I think, particularly in light of the conversation we've been having here every Sunday. Um, we're in the midst of a, a series um, entitled simply Joy, the study in the book of Philippians. And over the last few weeks, we've been discovering We've been discussing the discovery of joy in one's life. Not happiness, but, but the abiding question of deep joy. The, the idea of a, an abiding joy that rests in us and stays in us in all circumstances. We've been discussing this because the, the book of Philippians, the study that we are in, ha, has a consistent theme of the declaration of joy. Just in chapter 1, Paul writes and says he is praying in joy, rejoicing in the work of the gospel, and taking joy in the progression of faith. And throughout the rest of the book, he says that his joy is complete when the church is in unity, that, that he rejoices in his life if his life is poured out for the gospel, that he has joy in the Lord and rejoices in his presence, and he rejoices in the work of Christ in the lives of others. Time and time and time again, Paul is talking about the joy that he has, how he abides in joy, how he lives in joy, how he rejoices in Jesus. And this is particularly poignant because this is all being written while he's locked up in a Roman prison. We talked about this over the last several weeks, how, how Paul is, is in this pit underground with almost no light where he gets, he gets supplies lowered to him through a hole in the ground, where, where, where human waste and, and even, even the wash from the marketplace would land in his cell. And in it he writes, I pray in joy. I rejoice in my circumstances. I have joy in where I am at. You understand how, how, you, how you look at this and, and, and you hear this and you understand this. And if you're trying to look in your own life to find joy, what Paul says might be a good philosophical starting point. Paul is modeling in his life the truth to which he is anchored. To live is Christ. To die is gain. And from that place, from, from, that, from that idea, he always lives in hope. He always discovers joy. He always finds that he has purpose and meaning, and he rejoices in expectation. 
to live is Christ, to die is gain, is the foundation, is the, is the wellspring of the joy that he confesses in the midst of prison. And I want you to take notice of something. I, as I've talked about this, I've never called Paul's words simply a philosophy. A philosophy like Aristotle's or Desaad or Kuhn. Because, because Paul's words transcend the, the simple observations and, and the musings of a human mind. Instead, they reflect the hope of mankind conceived by the mind of our Creator. The hope of mankind conceived not by guys who think deeply, but by the ones who made our minds to be able to think deeply. And that hope is namely the gift of Jesus Christ. Yes, Paul writes, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. See, for many of us, we live in alignment with philosophies that are reflected in thoughts and teachings of great thinkers. Great thinkers of old, or maybe it's the amalgamation of those cobbled together with our own philosophies of life. But whatever it is that governs our existence, it is limited in that those ideas of our, of our, of our, of our own creation. They're limited by, by our limitations, often failing as a result of our failings. But the transcendent joy, the profound meaning of life, the great hope of expectation expressed by Paul is granted to us by God through Jesus Christ. And in his statement, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We are able to be led to that same joy, to that same meaning, to that, to that same transcendent hope. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Let me try and unfold for you what the Holy Spirit, through the writings of Paul, is trying to teach us. To live is Christ. Now contemplate those simple words. To live is Christ. Think about them. What, what could they, they possibly mean to us? To live is Christ. Thinking through this and really processing those words is important because, because it gets to the heart of the true nature of the Christian experience. 
it gets to the heart of what it means to be a Christian, and, and, and it's a meaning that, that I think too few people understand. To live as Christ. For those of us who, who are Christians and those of us who have been in Christendom, there are too few of us who understand really what that means and, and how that applies to the Christian faith we have. Not, not to mention those who are outside the Christian faith or those who are antagonistic to the Christian faith. They don't really, we don't really understand what it means when we say to live is Christ. But it is what it means to be a Christian. It is what it means when you give your life to Jesus Christ. See, as we have this conversation, as we talk through this idea of being a Christian, the, 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 the foundation, the undergirding, the, the, the reality, the, the, the starting point of the conversation to live as Christ is to be a Christian. It's to come to this point in your life when you realize that I don't have it figured out. In fact, what I've discovered through my life is that, that, that the decisions I make that are driven by my own flesh, that are driven by my own desires, tend to leave me in a place where I'm empty. Because I was created for something different. I wasn't created simply for, for the, the simple pleasures of this world, the, the temporal pleasures of this world. We can look around us and we can see it. We can feel it in ourselves and we can see it in the lives of the people around us. That is a con- constant and continual pursuit for something that doesn't satisfy, that doesn't fulfill us. And ultimately you realize that living for myself is separating me further and further away from my purpose, which is to be united with my Heavenly Father. And through the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, you discover that the reconciliation that you seek is through Jesus Christ. That there is a hope that we have that transcends this place. And so we come to Him and we say, I'm so sorry I've lived my life for myself, that, that, that I've ignored my purpose, that I've ignored my Heavenly Father. Forgive me of that. Come and be Lord in my life. See, we talk a lot within culture, we talk a lot within church about being a Christian. But too often I think we lose sight of what that means. And Paul encapsulates it. To live is Christ. It is the embodiment of of Christ alive in our living as our living. One of the problems we have as Christians is so few of us embrace this idea. One of the problems we have as those who, who, who have rejected Christianity is so few of us understand that that's really what it is. To live is Christ. In fact, the most, the most direct translation of the words of Paul in this passage are to live Christ. The is isn't even there. What do we do? We live Christ. We, we live Christ. We, we embody Christ. This obviously has, has a myriad of implications. But I think a simple understanding can be discovered in this defining idea. To live as Christ is the emulation of Christ's selfless life in service to God Inspired by love. 
That what it means to live Christ is to emulate Christ's selfless life in service to his heavenly Father that was inspired by love. You can, you can walk through the entire story of Jesus Christ and you can see that as the encapsulation of what it was to be Christ. That he came to this earth fully God and fully man with the full intent of sacrificing for the redemption of others. Laying down his life in service to God, continually and constantly saying, not my will, Father, but your will be done. And through it all, inspired by a love. A love for his Father and a love for his people. This is the imagery of who Jesus Christ is. And I really believe it encapsulates what we are called to when it says, to live is Christ. Living Christ begins with emptying of yourself. When I talk about this idea of, of Christ's selfless life, it means self-denial. It means, it means self-sacrifice. It means a selfless existence. There, there's, no, there's no question that what I'm talking about here describes the imagery of Jesus, the, the life of Jesus, the existence of Jesus Christ, right? He emptied himself. He was selfless. In fact, the very next chapter of Philippians shows us that that the very outset of his coming reveals his sacrifice. Paul writes in chapter 2, he says, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Just that description right there, it speaks to, it speaks to just, just the point of him coming. It, it, it says Jesus Christ, who was equal with God, Jesus Christ, who was God, Jesus Christ, who was in the heavenlies with God, as God. It says he emptied himself and came and took on the form of a broken man, took on the, took on the form of, of humanity, and became a servant. This is the description of Jesus Christ coming, just the coming part. It's not even talking about the point, the, 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 the apex, the end of it all. Why did he come? To die on the cross as a sacrifice, the perfect lamb sacrifice for our sins. And it's described in the very next verse for what we just read in chapter 2. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Living Christ starts with a willingness to humbly sacrifice yourself. It, it, it begins with a willingness of humble self-denial and, and humble self-sacrifice. Even Jesus Christ establishes this as the defining mark of being a follower of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 16, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus, in the most simple terms, says what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to follow after Jesus Christ? What does it mean to live Christ? He must deny himself, take up his cross, 
if he's going to follow me. And listen, this, this, is not, this is not a vague idea. But it has, it has, it has very, very specific, real-world implications. Living Christ means it manifests in the denial of the desires of the flesh. Here's an idea I'm sharing right now that, that is not popular in American culture. We live in a culture that, that emphasizes the idea, if it feels good, do it. If it makes you happy, do it. If it gives you pleasure, do it. We live in a culture and a society that has, has gone a long way to embracing the philosophy of hedonism. And as a result, it set itself and pitted itself against the philosophy to live Christ, to die as gain. Living Christ means it manifests in the denial of the desires of the flesh. Jesus makes this very clear. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. It also means denying, as the Word of God says, the lust of the flesh. Galatians says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and its passions and its desires. Romans puts it like this. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. Do you, see how, do you see how Paul mirrors what he's saying? Put on Jesus Christ, live Christ. And in doing that, he says, make no provision for the flesh in regards to lust. And, and Peter, Peter explains it, I think, even more fully, uh, tying it to living in accordance with Christ, to understanding who Christ is in your life. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. We can't say, my flesh wants to do this. I, I want to do this. It feels good so I can do this. And also say, to live as Christ. In fact, look at the context. I love the way Peter writes this because he says, he says, set your hope fully on the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he says, in doing that, then deny the flesh. And I don't, I don't think, it's, I don't think it's, it's coincidence that he says, set your hope fully on the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know why? Because so many of us put our hopes in the things of the flesh. So many of us think that if we satisfy the flesh, we'll be satisfied. So many of us think if we pursue this and chase after that and grab this, we'll be okay, we'll be good, we'll be happy, we'll find joy. And he's saying, listen, put your hope fully in Jesus Christ. Put your hope fully in him as your provision, as your sustenance, as your life, as your hope. And in so doing, he says, deny your flesh. And understand something, that, that call to self-denial isn't simply the area, in areas of things like, like sexual sin or, or greed. The, the call to self-denial as living Christ manifests even in his call to forgive, to love, to give. 
Think about the selflessness of the call of Christ when he says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. This may be the most selfless call in all of Scripture. Think of the selflessness in the call of Christ to forgiveness. Jesus says, forgive those who seek forgiveness no matter how often they come seeking it. Colossians says, if, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. I read that passage, and to me, it's, it's, it's amazing. It, it, it has incredible implications. He's talking to the church, and he's saying, listen, if you've got an issue with someone, if somebody's done you wrong, he says, you know how you handle it? Forgive them. When I go through this, when I, when I go through the description, the, the call of Jesus Christ in following him to, to love your enemies, to do good to those who hate you, to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who abuse you, can't you feel in your own spirit, in your own heart, the selflessness that is required to get there? How that grates against who we are, how that grates against our own spirit, how quite often our, our own flesh rears up and says, I'm not going to forgive that guy. Do you understand how they've treated me? Do you understand what they've done to me? Do you understand what they've said? How can I love that person? The call to selflessness transcends just this idea of talking about quote-unquote sin or sleeping around or getting drunk. It, It calls us deeply into this place of saying, you know what? I have to live selflessly. I have to lay this down. We have to understand clearly these calls of loving an enemy, blessing those who curse you, praying for those who who abuse you, forgiving those who seek forgiveness, even repeatedly, are acts of self-denial. Our human nature is self-protection. Our human nature is to rear up defending our rights and being disgusted by disrespect. But living Christ requires denying the flesh, surrendering our pride so that we can show Jesus to others. And I'm going to tell you, in the natural, it is impossible. In fact, I would say in the natural, it's even self-destructive. If not for the other part of how I define living Christ. Yes, to live Christ is the emulation of Christ's selfless life. But that emulation, that selflessness, is done in service to our Heavenly Father, inspired by His love for us. This is a key point. You have to understand something. When we talk about self-denial, we're not talking about some, some form of asceticism or some form of stoicism or some Spartan life for its own sake. It's not just about self-denial for its own sake. We, we see that in the philosophy of asceticism. We see that in the philosophy of stoicism. It's better for you if you live more simply. It's better for you if you empty yourself and are selfless. That's not what we're talking about here. 
It's not sacrifice and self-denial in the vacuum of space for its own marriage, but it is rooted in the inspiration of love given by our Father and experienced in Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's not for its own sake, it's in relationship. A relationship with a loving, living, sovereign God. We can give in this way that Christ calls us. We can sacrifice in this way that Christ leads us to. Undergirded by the truth that God is working in it and God is working through it. It doesn't have the same relationship. It doesn't look like, it doesn't feel like, it doesn't act like asceticism. It doesn't act like stoicism. Because there is a living God who loves me and is sovereign and at work in all of these circumstances. I don't have to defend myself because I have a defender in my Heavenly Father. I don't have to seek from others to be encouraged and to be liked and to be okay with because I'm already okay with my Heavenly Father. The fact that this isn't a vacuum, that it isn't for our own sake, separated from the reality of a living God is essential. How can I give completely? How can I give, how can I give completely and totally selflessly if I don't have God? Think about it in these terms. Think about me as a father. Me as a father who has a wife and three children that I have to provide for. And think about the fact if I'm down to my last $100. I have a $100 bill that I have to provide for the rest of the month for my kids. I have to provide them food. I have to provide them a, a place to live. I have to take care of them. And I find myself confronted with another family, another family who doesn't have anything. Now, I can, I, can, I can be moved by stoicism, the virtue of its own sake, and say, you know what, I want to provide for them. I can be moved by what everybody says, you know, giving to others makes you feel good. And I can want to feel good. But I've got $100. And, and the truth is, my, my, my provision is in that $100. That my, my, my dependency is on that $100. And as a result of me having someone to take care of, me having a family to provide for, I have to make a calculation about that $100, don't I? Because my dependency is on that. My provision is in that. And I might be motivated to give $20 to that family so I can keep $80 for mine, or $50 for that family so I can keep $50 for mine. Because the math makes sense. The math binds me. The math holds me. The responsibility requires me. Because my provision is in that $100. But you see, when I believe in an active God, a God who knows me, a God who loves me, a God who is sovereign, I can sit and say, if that family needs $100, i will give them $100 because my provision isn't in that $100. It's in my Heavenly Father. It is in that that I, I have the provision to give selflessly, to give with everything I have when I'm moved on by the Holy Spirit so that I can emulate and show Jesus Christ to people. Because my provision and my dependency is not in the calculations I make, but it is fully and completely in a heavenly God who knows me. You cannot be fully selfless in a vacuum. 
If you don't believe that there is a God there to provide for you, a Heavenly Father who loves you, a Heavenly Father who is willing to stand with you as you seek to live Christ for His glory and for His purposes. And it doesn't just translate as we talk about $100 here, $100 there. It's not simply about the calculation of money. I can love selflessly. I can give selflessly. I can embody the image and the standard of Christ in response to the love of God revealed in Christ, confident that He is my supplier. I can forgive completely. I can let go of what people have done against me. Because I don't have to fight for it. I, I, don't, have to, I don't depend on it. I don't depend on your, your affirming me. I don't depend on you liking me. I don't depend on you being okay with me. Because I have a Heavenly Father who has chosen me. And I'm in Him. And I'm for Him. And He's in me. And He's for me. And so I can give of myself completely. Think about the passage where Jesus Christ says, I I want you to love your enemies. I I want you to forgive those who do wrong against you. Do Do you understand how difficult that is? Because our sense of personal justice rears up and says, that's not fair. That's not right. What they've done to me is wrong. But see, when I look into Scripture, what I love is that Paul takes up, he picks up right where Jesus lets off. And he says, listen, Do not repay evil for evil. Why? Why does he say that? He says, because because God says, I will avenge. You see, I sit in a place and I can say, you know what? Who am I? Maybe they did something wrong to me, but you know what? I did something wrong to my Heavenly Father and He forgave me. It's not my job. I I I don't have to be the personal avenger of righteousness. I am free to forgive. I am free to love because I know in a God who is righteous. I know in a God who is just, and I know he will avenge. This is not not a philosophy lived out in life in the cold vacuum of nature, but a truth connected to the reality of a living God. You're not doing Christianity if you're not doing the path of Jesus Christ. To live is Christ. Christ is the thing in this life. And that's why Paul can follow to live is Christ with to die is gain. Because Christ is still the thing. When you've lived your whole life capturing Christ in your living, to receive Christ as your reward is what provides you hope. And look at the the profound hope that that Paul is confessing in the passage we just read. He says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And when he talks about that death, he says, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Not just better. He says it's far better. Do you understand how when your life is rooted in the pursuit of Christ, knowing that upon your death you capture him, that is not a fearful thing. That is a hopeful thing. 
It allows me to live in a way in which I say, man, all I want in my life is Jesus to be embodied. All I want in my life is Jesus to be captured. All I want in my life is to live Jesus. And so when I come to this point and my life is over, I have hope because I know I will get Jesus. The fear of death is rooted in the supremacy of life. The fear of death for most is rooted in the fulfillment of your being in the experiences of this life. For the Christian, the hope in the expectation of death is rooted in the supremacy of Jesus. The hope in the expectation of death is rooted in that the essence of my being is the embodiment of Christ. I desire Christ in my life and I capture Christ in my death. To live is Christ. To die is to be with him. And for many, even as I say this, for many, this seems like a platitude. But I'm telling you, it is a reality that I have observed and experienced time and time and time and time again. In deeply personal ways. Going back to my very first youth pastor, I remember sitting in, in, in the hospital room with, with two of my two teenagers who were in my, in, in, my, in my youth group. Their mom was dying of cancer. And I remember sitting in that hospital room speaking with her. Cancer had, had, had just, she was a shell of herself. And I remember talking with her and I remember seeing the light in her eyes. I remember seeing the hope in her eyes. When she says, I know it's okay because I get to be with Jesus. I saw this time and time again in the lives of my own parents. I mean, it is, it is as vivid a conversation as any in my mind right now, sitting in that hospital room with my dad. The day after he was given the, the, the diagnosis that he'd have six months to live. And I, and I mean the calm in his heart, the calm in his spirit, the calm in his voice, where he said, Tommy, it's okay. It's okay. I'm ready. I'm ready to be with Jesus. The man was 53 years of age. I'm ready to be with Jesus. Dad lived 12 more years after that, and I was invited. I was, I was called to his hospital room three different times in those 12 years by, by doctors saying, uh, you, you, might as well, you, you need to come and say goodbye. He's not going to make it through the weekend. Every time I went, it's okay. It's okay, I'm ready to be with Jesus. I watched it in my mom's life throughout the last six years of her life and beyond that. My mom had her third battle with cancer and every single time it would come up. I mean, she would look at me with a smile on her face say, I can't wait to be with my Jesus. When your expectation is the capture of that which you've lived for your entire life. There is no fear. And it becomes the source of joy in the midst of your life. Why does Paul say, 
I pray with joy. I rejoice in this. I live in joy in the midst of that prison, fully knowing that death is at his door. Because he knows. No matter what, he gets Jesus. I believe Peter in 1 Peter 1 describes it beautifully. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power is being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. When the desire of an individual is to live Christ and to see Christ in all circumstances, you can find joy. Joy inexpressible and full of glory. If you're here today, and have not found the, the inexpressible joy in knowing Jesus Christ as your everything, I'm telling you it's available to you right now. No matter what your circumstance is, no matter what your situation is, when, you, when you've embraced the hope of Jesus Christ, a hope that brings healing to the brokenhearted, a, a hope that gives, gives direction, a pathway of Christ, where you find inexpressible joy no matter what. If you're here today and you are a Christian but you're realizing you have not embraced the standard that Paul has established to live as Christ. I invite you to reevaluate what your Christian faith really means. So many of us as believers don't look like Paul in the midst of prison. We don't look like Paul in the midst of pain and heartache because we haven't really fully embraced to live as Christ. Jesus lays out for us something only he can give us, a joy that is inexpressible, a hope that is indescribable. That's what Jesus invites us to. To live is Christ and to die is gain.